there was a release of over a thousand prisoners. And the impact in Yemen was a phenomenon. And why? Because this was individual lives. These are not numbers. It created hope. And hope, as I have often said, is the currency of the mediator. The mediator needs to infuse hope into the people and then through them into the parties. If you don't hope for a better future, you won't work for one. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. Today, we have Martin Griffiths with us, Special Envoy of the UN Secretary General to Yemen. While today he may be a top UN official, Martin has been instrumental in establishing the field of private diplomacy and has mediated across the world, from Indonesia to Kenya to Spain. Martin, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you very much indeed, Adam. It's great to have you with us. Martin, I want to take you back to 1999, when you founded the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, or HD, an organisation which, full disclosure for our listeners, I would later start to work for. You know, and that, at that time, you know, the Cold War had ended 10 years earlier. You had these simmering ideological and religious conflicts coming to the fore in some parts of the world. Why then, at that moment, did you have this notion of private diplomacy? That mediation, which states would normally do, could be done by a non-governmental organisation. I think the first thing that was central to that project and that aspiration was the fact that the four or five or six of us who came together to work to found HD at the beginning were all from humanitarian backgrounds. We'd all worked for ICRC, for UN agencies, and so on. So we came to this idea from a humanitarian perspective in which we had spent many, many years of our lives trying to help the people who suffer from conflict. And we all wanted to do something a little bit more fundamental than that. And one of our founders, Sergio Verdamello, for example, was very, very crucial in making the argument that we of all people know from our experience of the impact of conflict, surely we can help with stopping conflict and not just improving the life chances of those impacted. And so that was the first thing, Adam. And the second thing, which was very, very powerful for us, was the fact that we felt very strongly at the time that there was not enough equity, there was not enough equality, there was not enough natural justice in the way in which mediation was practiced. And HD was founded on the presumption that there needed to be a levelling up, if you like, of the opportunities for all parties to the conflict to get it right and to resolve those conflicts. So we were part of a sort of a mission to improve mediation, I think. And as you said, 99 was a period of great hope and aspiration and excitement. Kofi Annan was in the United Nations. Mediation had come back to multilateralism. We wanted to make it more effective. And we thought that by making it part of private diplomacy, in other words, it's not only official organizations who do mediation, that we could make that happen. And it was really quite a bold endeavour, in a way, to have the hubris almost, to kind of think that you could take on that task. You know, what gave you that self-belief that, yes, there, there's clearly a need for it to happen, but why did you think that you could do it? Well, it's a very good question. I don't think we really thought that we could do it at the beginning. But you just try anyway. We just, just try anyway. The, the, the board of 
HD at that time didn't want us to get involved in mediation because for the very reasons you put forward, which is it's too risky, you don't know anything about it. And what happened was that we kind of happened into it. Louisa Chan Bogley, one of the original people in HD at that time, was sent by us to go to Timor, East Timor, which is brimming with crisis at that time, late 99. And we wanted her to go there to look at the issue of humanitarian principles in conflict. And she got as far as Jakarta, where she met with a range of humanitarian people and others who said, there's no need for you to go to East Timor. I think we've got it covered. But Aceh, if you go off to Aceh, to the left here, there's a real conflict that nobody's doing anything about. And Louisa went to Aceh, and we kind of discovered the idea. We had talked about it before. We discovered the idea that we could bring the parties together to end a conflict. And that's how it started. So I don't think we had a grand vision. I, for example, in the first few years of HD, never thought that it would last, actually, as an organization. And a huge credit to David Harland and others. It's not only lasted, it's become a dominant partner in this endeavor. But I never thought it would happen that way. So we didn't really have a long-term vision. We just thought we'd do our best. You know, like so many of these things, they kind of happen by accident. And when you you know, had turned left and, and entered Aceh, as you put it, you know, that the context of the time being that you have this insurgent movement, the, the movement for free Aceh, known as GAM, who at that point had been fighting with the government for over 20 years. You know, how did you first start making contact with them? It wasn't that easy, in fact. And in fact, as we did later discovered with other conflicts, making contact with the insurgent group and doing it in a way that is safe, and fair and on the basis of good values is very, very difficult. Entering into a mediation is probably one of the most difficult parts of the business. But so with GAM, we knew that they had a outside diaspora office or community, which was in Stockholm, where their leader, a rather older man who claimed to be the Sultan of Aceh, was based and where a number of their other core officials were based. And as we as you know, we went through the phone book of Stockholm knowing a few of the names that we were looking for, to find them. And indeed, we did We did find them. We phoned them up and they said, who are you? And we said, well, you, you know, we're a new organization in Switzerland. And so cold calling was a key part of our way of doing business at the time. Uh, but then we got to meet one of the principal GAM leaders in Singapore. And from there, we, we made some real progress. And can you talk about that first meeting? Because, I mean, were you nervous? Like, how did it actually happen? I mean, Singapore seems an unlikely setting for first contact with a, for an armed group? It is an unlikely setting, you know, fabled um, downtown district of Singapore. It was, of course, nerve-wracking for, for me and for us because we had no idea what we were likely to meet. We knew that they didn't know anything about us, and frankly, we knew very little about them. I went to Singapore, and I decided to do some shopping before having the meeting, and we were, you know, killing time, essentially, and I suddenly realized I was going through shopping malls in Singapore that there was a bunch of people following me like a Keystone Cops movie they were going up and down stairs and so I sort of tried to get rid of them because clearly they were they wanted to cover the meeting so you know we ran away from these people and then had the meeting very very deliberately and carefully in a hotel lobby so we didn't want to look covert and I met Malik the man who I think is still very much a, a leader in Aceh himself a Singaporean citizen, by the way, but Achenese. They had had no contact with organizations like ours. Nowadays, there's a great deal of competition, as you know, 
to get access to insurgent groups. In those days, there was nothing. We quickly went to the point of trying to create a relationship of confidence, which essentially meant swapping phone numbers, getting to know what his primary considerations were, and agreeing to meet next time in Stockholm. And we did that. It was not difficult to create a relationship with GAM, precisely because the market was so open for those relationships at that time. HD was one of the first globally to do this kind of stuff. What was more difficult was inevitably going to be to create a similar relationship with the government of Indonesia. So kind of through a combination of luck and this entrepreneurial spirit, you're you're trying to build trust with both sides, start a process and really make it about them. But presumably you also had kind of personal feelings and, and, and could at an emotional level relate to, to the sides in different ways. Did you ever feel that that revealed itself despite your attempts to kind of stay obviously as impartial as possible? I found that issue something you really have to watch very carefully that you don't start in your own feelings or emotions or your private conversations or in particular your internal conversations within your organization to be too critical of one or the other or to take sides or frankly even to take a view as to what a successful outcome of the conflict would look like. It's not always easy. In the case of Indonesia, in the case of much of HD's early work, it was much easier to have a good relationship with the insurgent movement than the government, because the government, as in the case of Indonesia and others we dealt with, looked on us rather askance, because what is this Swiss organization? They didn't need us, but they did need us because the insurgent group had chosen to work with us. And I made mistakes. The one that I remember vividly was once in 2003, 2004, we had agreed a ceasefire and we had a large office in Banda Aceh to oversee the ceasefire. And I remember going into this big room where the ceasefire was being managed and there was the GAM delegation and there was the government of Indonesia delegation. There was our people. Classic error. I hugged, of course, our friends in the GAM because, of course, we had such good relations with them. And the government watching this said, I'm sorry, you're really neutral. And they were totally right because I'd just given myself away and I had an even worse occasion a bit later when we were having talks we were sitting down and i had the government of indonesia and the gam on either side of me government of indonesia chief negotiator at that time was a man who later became foreign minister hassan Wariyuda, an extraordinarily gifted diplomat and he was being very annoying messing with the agenda and generally not letting me do my what i wanted to do i raised my hand above his head because i was obviously lost it and i was about to whack him from above. And my colleague next to me, Andrew Marshall, whispered in my ear and said, I don't think that's a good idea. And afterwards, in the, in the break, Hassan came up to me and said, hmm, that's interesting. I saw that. And I said, well, you know. And at that point, you know, I apologize. At that point, I think what the mediator has to invest in, as you know, is relationships. The fact that we had such a good relationship with Hassan and his, his delegation meant that we could be forgiven for these moments of uh, unrestraint. After Aceh, you moved to Europe, to the conflict between the Spanish government and the Basque separatist organisation ETA, which was designated a terrorist organisation by a number of governments operating in the heart of Europe. Given that it was such a secretive organisation, how did you go about establishing a relationship of trust with ETA? It was a fascinating and difficult problem. Because as you say, this was a terrorist group in the heart of Europe. They didn't do advertising. They didn't have a website. None of these things were available for ETA at that time. 
very, very careful and disciplined and focused on rigorous tradecraft for their various military operations and various criminal operations. So we didn't know how to get to them. We discovered through the benefits of the internet, one of the world's experts on the Basque region. And we got hold of him, phoned him up and said, we'd like to bring you to Geneva. So we flew him over to Geneva and asked him to come and give us a sort of private seminar on the Basques. And at the end of two days, he said, but you know, I think what you should be doing, he knew a bit more about us as an organization, by then. I think what you should be doing is contacting ETA. We said, that's an interesting idea. How would we do that? And so he said, well, look, I don't know ETA, of course. You can't contact them. They're criminals. But I do know somebody who can, you know, sort of that old cliche. Friend of a friend. A friend of a friend. It was totally a friend of a friend. He said, what you need to do is you need to write a letter, essentially, to ETA, which we will somehow, and I don't need to go into the details, but we will somehow get to the friend of the friend. I said, isn't a letter a little bit of a hostage to fortune? You know, I'm going to write to a a terrorist group in Europe. He said, what you will discover about ETA is that they have to do things in writing because, of course, you know, they they have to take messages physically from one person to the next. So we took the risk. The letter went to this friend of a friend, and time passed, Adam. Months and months passed with nothing happening. I'd sort of given up on it, and then one day... I was approached by some, in fact, oddly enough, Basque lawyers, human rights lawyers who were coming to Geneva to the Human Rights Council. And they said, could they drop in? And they closed the door and they said, here is a letter for you. And I said, oh, my God. And I opened the letter. It's from ETA with the ETA heading saying, we have checked you out. And they had checked everything that they could in our organization and who worked for us and who paid us and how were we funded and what were we like. And they had decided to trust us to the extent of a meeting. And very soon after that, we had instructions from them as to how to do our first meeting. Then you do start to meet them. And, you know, these are quite extraordinary encounters uh, with their leadership. You know, what were they like? What was your first impression? My first impression was that these are very, very disciplined, serious people in the sense of the rigor of their tradecraft. I mean, the very first meeting, we were given instructions rather like a movie to, you know, be at a certain spot holding a copy. This is literally true, holding a copy of a newspaper and wearing a red scarf. The red scarf has meanwhile, you know, gone into history. And you will be approached by somebody at a certain time who will say, what time is the train from here to another city? And you will say, I don't know, I'm only here for something or other. I can't remember exact words. That will be your, you know exchange sounded like the French resistance and then you know, you'd go off and have a meeting now frankly we didn't do that meeting by the way because we were so frightened about it but we were operating in a world that was really new I think to all of us and is still new I think to most of us a world of risk but where we were convinced and our board chair was very helpful to us on this that we were doing this for the right reasons and we were able through also through some expeditious means to make contact with the Spanish government at the cabinet level very quickly. So and what we then discovered, Adam, was was that there was a process begin about to begin between ETA and the Spanish government, a secret one, and they were waiting for a mediator to turn up to host the process. And we happened in at exactly the right moment. And the rest, you know, we followed on from there. 
I'd like to shift focus now to, to what you're working on at the moment, you know, because you're a man who's had many lives, a sort of serial entrepreneur of sorts. Because, you know, after leaving HD, you were the first director of the European Institute of Peace. And now you're with the UN, serving as the Secretary General's envoy for Yemen, uh, a job which you've been doing for the past two and a half years. You know, for our listeners who might not know Yemen, I mean, it's a very complicated war. To grossly oversimplify, you've got a government that's being backed by Saudi Arabia, the UAE and others. You have Houthi rebels backed by Iran and, and many other armed groups too. You know, this is a war that has escalated and fragmented over time. But I'd like you to take us back to when you first took on the job. I mean, did you feel that your role as a mediator was understood? Very, very imperfectly. And, you know, there is no greater privilege in our world than to be offered the chance of the kind of job I've got, to be a UN envoy because of access, because of the reach, because of the mission. There's nothing better than that. And I thought going into this job two and a half years ago that the role of a mediator would, would by now would have been understood as what a mediator is and what a mediator isn't. And I, I soon realized that no, 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 that is not the case. One of the, the aspects of the Yemen conflict situated in that region in the Middle East is that, and particularly as a United Nations official, you're, you're kind of, it is assumed that you take one side and you certainly would support, for example, the, obviously the internationally recognized government, for example. And in Yemen, also the social media and the rhetoric is all about assigning blame to the other side and calling them out and that somehow that's going to help. First of all, I'm a mediator. I don't judge your performance or your suffering in this conflict because I'm a mediator. If you want those judges, you go to human rights organizations. They exist in the UN. If you want help for abuses, go to humanitarian. For me, my job is very simple. I'm there to put the parties together with the best chance of making a solution without judgment. So first of all, no judgment. Secondly, no bias. And it isn't a matter of who I think is more relevant or more appropriate or more better suited to run Yemen. I don't have a vote in Yemen. No, so it's not for me to say. And so I, you know, have had it difficult to say to people, don't ask me to criticize one or other side, because I need access to both. I need a relationship of confidence with both. And if I do have that relationship of confidence, don't feel that I will be somehow partial to that other side. I won't be. But what I noticed after about six or seven or eight months of working, I noticed that there was beginning to be a shift in understanding. And very often now, my officials in the region, they often say to me, now we think that Ansarallah has done something which should be condemned. Ansarallah being the Houthis. Ansarallah being the Houthis, I beg your pardon. We think that the Houthis have done such a bombing or such an attack over there, and they need to be condemned. Of course, we know you won't do it because you're a mediator, but perhaps some governments or some other part of the United Nations system can. So I'm actually quite pleased that we've got there, but it's it still means that there is an enormous hill to climb internationally, I think, to ensure that the role, function, privilege, and prerogatives of a mediator are understood. Hmm. And you know that you're, you're trying to, I suppose, have an understanding about what you will do and what you won't do. But there's an urgency to that, of course, because, you know, as you're starting your work, you've got the UN humanitarian chief warning that the crisis is at a tipping point. UNICEF talking about 300,000 children who might starve to death. 
And a lot of the worry at the time was focused on this port Hodeida, um, you know, through which the vast majority of the country's food and medicine is brought in. So kind of bring us back to that time in 2018, you know, did that, the scale of that crisis concentrate minds, your mind, the minds of the parties? Yes, in that summer of 2018, shortly after I'd started this job, I was trying to see what the entry point, if you like, might be to a process of political negotiation. There had been political negotiations in 2016 in Kuwait, 100 days, famously, of the parties sitting together, but eventually not producing the goods. And I, I needed to, 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 to think through an opportunity. And Hodeida presented itself partly as an opportunity, but also as an obligation, as you're suggesting. What was happening in Hodeida was this. The government of Yemen forces, totally understandably, and with the support of the Saudi-led coalition, and particularly with forces, military forces from the United Arab Emirates, were advancing up the coast towards Hodeida, which is a port in the center of the country on the Red Sea coast, occupied and run by the Houthi movement, Ansarallah, at that time. And those ports, the Hodeida ports, were the entry point for the humanitarian aid, upon which the people of Yemen depended for their survival. And there was talk of famine then, as indeed there is now, again. And so it, it seemed to me to be clear that there was a convergence of humanitarian obligation and mediation opportunity, which centered around Hodeida. And I was talking to my interlocutors in Abu Dhabi at the time, who were very much in the lead in the with the government of Yemen in the military campaign against Hodeida. And they were saying, well, we, you know, we'll, we can take it very quickly and we can take it soon. And I said to those who wanted to listen to me, why don't we look at a way in which we can, as it were, neutralize Hodeida and take it out of the, the equation? I said, for example, we should try and see if Ansar Allah, the Houthi leadership, would allow the UN into the port of Hodeida to help run it or to take over its running. And we should try and do the same with the city. So that was the proposition, Adam, that came up in the summer. But what was really interesting, that was not terribly original, but what was interesting was how it eventually worked out. And I'd like to understand how, because, you know, you brought the warring parties to Stockholm eventually later that year to try to avert this looming humanitarian catastrophe and agree to this sort of idea which you, you've begun to formulate over the summer. You know, how did taking the parties away to Sweden, to this carefully constructed environment, change the dynamic? You know, what was the atmosphere like? If you take people out of theatre, if you like, to a place of some kind of seclusion and keep them there, they are obliged to address the issues which you want them to address. In this case, the possibilities of a change of the war in Hodeida. And the other thing that happens when, when that takes place is in these sort of circumstances, is that diplomats come of member states, of governments who are interested in the outcome and who have a way of making the outcome happen. And at this time, we had in Washington, Secretary Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense, who had, with Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, issued a call for a nationwide ceasefire just about two or three weeks before we went to Sweden. So we had the top leadership of the United States government calling for a knock it off, end this conflict. And of course, Hodeida was the presented case. 
And what happened was in Sweden, first of all, we tried hard to get the parties to engage with each other. But diplomacy behind behind the scenes was crucial. And Jim Mattis, for whom I have an endless respect, was very, very vigorous in his prosecution of diplomacy. And he had the closest of relationships with the Emirati leadership who were crucial to this. And so we had from behind the scenes the Emirates saying, no, we won't accept that, but maybe we will accept that. So we had two things going on at the same time. We had diplomacy and we had mediation. And and, and I think in conflicts of this kind, uh, of a strategic nature, you always, in the job that I have, you always have to marry the two. You know, it conjures to mind the sort of image of the mediator as a as the conductor of an orchestra, uh, and you're trying to get different people to play different things, and and for its all to to link up. And you you know, you talk about the pressure in a way that's applied by the U.S. and others to get to a deal. And for those who are actually kind of doing the negotiation part of it rather than the diplomacy, how what did you see of their kind of interaction that persuaded them that yes, I can sign this agreement? It was exactly exactly as you say, it was an orchestration. I was lucky enough to bring with me from my mission a a team of about 15 to 20 people, all of whom had had a lot of contacts with the two parties and knew them well, knew the individuals well. And what I did was not myself take the lead in the daily mediation negotiation, but to make sure that we met morning and evening and then we deployed the best person to the right person. If it was our person who knew Ansar Allah's leader well, that was the way in which we would start the conversation. No rocket science about this, but the point that I think is sometimes lost is that mediation depends on team work and getting your ego out of the way, as we have said earlier. From so The mediator as a solo performer is, for me, a recipe for disaster because they don't have the talent, they'll make mistakes. As a team, you get the best of both worlds. In addition, we're lucky to have a Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who is a very activist help to processes like this, and a very distinguished politician, as you know, from Portugal. And he had spoken to President Hadi, he had spoken to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he had spoken to uh, the leaders of the US and UK governments. We were orchestrating negotiation also on the different levels. We were able to mobilize that level of interest. Why? Because of the fact that the humanitarian community had laid down a marker that Hudeda would be a disaster. And it was that basic marker which meant that we were able to leverage international interest and individual activism. And you do get an agreement, Martin, but the situation today seems very bleak. You know, by some metrics, it's the world's largest humanitarian disaster. There's about 50 active battlefronts by some counts. But then there are glimmers of hope, you know, at least in some areas. You know, recently, the prisoner exchange of some 1,000 people. Tell us about why you think that was important, you know, politically, but also at a a human level. It was very important. What happened was that we, out of Stockholm, actually, out of those discussions that we've just been discussing, there had been created a committee between the two parties to manage the exchange and release of prisoners. And for the two years from 2018 until recently, 
we hadn't managed to get a single person out. All the discussions, which most of which have been virtual, of course, in the last six or seven months, had failed on the transactionalism of the party, saying, I want that person, and no, you can't, you must have that person. So it became a bit of bitter. We needed to bring the parties together. And we brought them to Switzerland, and this was about five or six weeks ago, back in October of 2020. And we sat them down in a mountain retreat, and we allowed them to approach us and ICRC, and they shouted at each other, of course, until they agreed. And what happened was this. There was a release of over a 1,000 prisoners, the biggest such release of prisoners in wartime in the history of ICRC, as they told us, at least since the Korean War. And the impact in Yemen was a phenomenon. And why? Because this was individual lives. These are not numbers. So many of these photographs of these people who'd come back and were their mother was hugging them as they you know, came back home, 1,050 families relieved to see their loved ones back from an unconscionable jail term, maybe some years. And I've always thought that the, the two things came out for me what's important. First of all, the saving of an individual life, as we know, is in some ways more important or more resonant than the saving of many. And secondly, and I know this from talking to many people in both parties, it created hope. A Houthi leader said to me, an Ansarallah leader said to me, he said, you will not know how that affected Salah, where the Ansarallah leadership is based. People were beginning to think there was a way out of this war when they saw that happen. And hope, as I have often said, is the currency of the mediator. The mediator needs to infuse hope into the people and then through them into the parties. If you don't hope for a better future, you won't work for one. I'd like to ask you, Martin, about the role of women. Because, you know, in the first series of this podcast, we interviewed Sanam Naragi Andalini, who talked about the pivotal role of, of Yemeni mothers in advocating for the release of prisoners. You know, of course, we know that Yemeni women have had a much broader role in peacemaking at, at different levels. You know, do you think that the contribution of women has been sufficiently recognised? Not at all. There is no doubt in my mind, first of all, that the role of women, that a, a place for women, a priority for women, is a fundamental requirement of democracy, for God's sake. But also, there's no doubt, because all records show this, including in Yemen, that it changes the discussion. Yemen is one of those conflicts which absolutely, especially now, requires champions for peace. And champions come from civil society. And the women's groups within that civil society are the most important. Sadly, in Yemen, as in many other cultures, women are not included. And in Sweden, those talks that we talked about, from the two delegations, there was a total of one woman, one woman out of about a number of about 25 to 30 people. And we made every effort and failed, and I and I and it, it, it's certainly a failure to get the parties to think differently. Now we're having another go for the next talks, obviously. The other thing is that women's networks, which are there's many of them in Yemen, we now, of course, have the capacity in reaching out to them virtually. We had a digital focus group of women and civil society and others of about three or four hundred people on the call a few months ago. Our colleagues in Libya, as you know, did the same with a thousand people. The time has long gone when 
Mediation isn't, you know, men in smoke-filled rooms. It can be done real-time into the front lines. That is industrial-scale inclusion. And I hope that that's what we will see as a standard requirement on peace processes in the, in the near term, because it's now been demonstrated as possible. I mean, it speaks to the tools that can be used to kind of deal with peace at different levels, to deal with a complicated war that has fragmented over time. And I want to ask you about that, because in addition to the government and the Houthis, you know, you've got a separatist movement in the South, many other armed groups. You know, how do you go about constructing a peace process that deals with that level of complexity? Two things, I think. One, I try not to know too much. I mean, I'm a mediator, I'm not an expert. And I try not to know too much of the detail of the complexity of a conflict. That Obviously, when I say that, you can imagine that 99% of those who listen to this see that as extraordinary, unacceptable, you know, that we are told that we should be steeped in the knowledge and the history and the traditions of the conflict. I don't. I think a mediator has to focus on being an effective mediator and the servant of a conflict. So I don't want to know too much about the complexity, but I do need to know enough, as you're suggesting, about those who can affect it and of those who can bring it back to where we want to go. So in Yemen, that includes the actors in the South. And we are very pleased that the Saudi uh, mediation is now at a very advanced stage in bringing the Southern Transitional Council, one of the, one of the organizations in the South, one of many, into the government of Yemen and therefore into our negotiation process. It was a problem that they weren't in it before. So that's good. But here's the second thing. Again, as an official mediator, you have a mandate. And my mandate is to mediate a solution to the conflict between the government of Yemen and Ansarallah, the Houthi movement. And there are many who say that I should not stray from that to have a broader inclusion, people of the South, people of the West, civil society, that I should stick to simply having the two parties sit down to knock out their differences. We all know that won't work. We all know that what the, what the magic that you have to do is to impress upon the parties who are the decision makers as mandated that they need to listen to those outside them. And the UN or any mediator needs to bring in those other voices, those other organizations into the process. I like to think that we can do this by having a much more iterative process of talks, not just formal talks at plenary level between the parties, consultations between such rounds where anybody can contribute. And the digital focus, of course, is an extraordinary liberation in that regard. You know, Martin, you talk about your hope for a reset of sorts. You know, in your last briefing to the Security Council, you said the same challenges have been coming up repeatedly, which is very diplomatic. But it does rather sound like the parties are, are stuck like a broken record almost. And, you know, when you get into a cycle like that, how do you seek to break it? It's true that we've been round and round the houses on this joint declaration, which is this proposal to introduce a national ceasefire and open up the country in various different ways. And we've been toing and froing and toing and froing. And I've said, as you know, especially to the council last time, we've got to get the party to sit down and negotiate with each other on this, not with me. So what do you do? You keep doing, I think, things on a number of different tracks. First of all, you start talking publicly more about the opportunities that are not being chased by the parties. 
Secondly, you emphasize in your private talks to each side the reason why this agreement makes sense to them as well as to the, the wider world. That's the job of the mediator to do that, even in the most difficult of times, of course. And thirdly, you look for the international support to make it happen. What you've got to do, Adam, I think, which is not easy, if you have a supportive international environment, and I think broadly we do, broadly, what you have to, as a UN or any other mediator, you have to also make sure that the decisions that are taken about the ways to end the war are Yemeni decisions. The level of initiatives that you take up, which actually sail through to fruition of very few. What that means is that you can never rely on success of any initiative. You can never allow yourself to enter a cul-de-sac without a way out. You know, the image that is in my mind, of course, is of the river, which circles obstacles and eventually finds its way to the sea. But you have to find yourself with a contingency plan. And of course, in this case, we do think of what we would do if this joint declaration doesn't get landed. So you have to have another way forward, always, in your mind. Martin, it's obviously hard to apply hindsight when you're still in the midst very much of your mediation. But I'd like to ask you how you look back on that agreement in Stockholm, because on the one hand, it staved off this immediate humanitarian crisis. But of course, like any limited agreement, the hope was always that it would be a kind of springboard to further progress, you know, whether that's a nationwide ceasefire or indeed political discussions. In retrospect, would you have kept that narrow focus of the Stockholm Agreement or dared to seek agreement on something bigger, in a way leveraging that diplomatic attention, which, as you know, is so clearly important in the resolution of Yemen's war? We spent a lot of time, indeed, thinking through what we should have done differently. I, I, I think that that's, that's the fundamental requirement for managing any process, is to think as hard as you can about what hindsight would tell you about what you're not doing today. The issue of sovereignty is what the ultimate resolution of the conflict is about. It's about the return of sovereign government and legitimate government to all of Yemen. And so you don't solve the issues of sovereignty, unless you're very lucky, with these partial agreements. And we didn't in Hodeida. And one of the consequences of that was that the parties were able to sit back and point fingers at us and at each other saying, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. And there's a lot of revisionism. But I accept that if we went over it again, I would try to make much more of our efforts, which were being made in Sweden, to move towards a political framework. You know what happened? At the end of the conference in Stockholm, we said to the parties, through the Secretary General, to President Hadi and the Houthi leadership, we said, we will now meet in two months' time to take up the one item we didn't address here, which is the political framework to resolve the conflict. We're still waiting for that to happen, and we've lost two years. So I think you 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 take on partial agreements at your peril. Now, having said that, I probably would do it again because we did save the humanitarian pipeline, and that was important. You know, what's quite striking, Martin, when we think about Yemen is really just the, in a way, the lack of attention that it sometimes gets in the international news. I mean, you know, you've got the Secretary General warning just last week that you know, Yemen is now in imminent danger 
of the worst famine the world has seen for decades. And it just doesn't register as much as one would expect. And, you know, when we think about the people who are at risk, you know, victims of war, if I try to put myself in their shoes, you know, I think they often feel like they're talked about but not talked to. What would your message be to them? I think we've suffered in Yemen for an absence of journalists. We can get in and out, but the press can't. So the coverage, the popular coverage, has been very limited. And therefore, this largest humanitarian program in the world, the greatest famine looming, is not understood globally. As you say, it's not on the agenda. And it is essential that we ensure, for the people that you're talking about, that they get a fair hearing. And a fair hearing is usually not so much from somebody like me with my, you know, mediation focus, but from the humanitarian and human rights communities and from international political frameworks to make sure that they're understood. What is happening in parts of Yemen almost certainly beggars belief in terms of the things that have been done to people. Having that story out helps people like me. I'd like to take a step back from Yemen and ask for your reflections on, I guess, a 20-year career now doing this kind of work and about family. Uh, because when you went to Aceh, you had two young kids. You know, how hard is it for mediators to have a semblance of family life? You know, what's the personal cost? When I started in Aceh, I just had my first child. I mean, we had Ruth and I just had our first child, Lara. And I went out to Indonesia probably two or three times a month. I'd go out, I'd work, come back. And Lara was born and was growing up. She was born in, in late 99, so around the time it started. And I remember vividly occasions when I would come home and she wouldn't know who I was. She'd hide behind her mother saying, who, you know, basically, who's that guy? I haven't seen him around. And it was, it was quite shocking. And the, the, the way in which you lay all that onto your partner of course, is, you know, it's tough. It's really, really tough. And I'm very lucky because Ruth, my wife, is somebody who has worked closely with Kofi Annan. She was in the UN. She understands this world much better than I do. And I haven't lived at home with my family for eight years, eight or nine years. Temporarily now, I'm here because of COVID in Geneva with Ruth and my son, Sasha. It's not about the, you know, whether you're happy or not. It's about the things that you lose in terms of your knowledge of the world and knowledge of values and knowledge of relations. That's the problem. Because that's what family gives you. You know, it gives you a grounding, a moral grounding apart from anything else. Thank you for sharing your story, Martin. Thank you for the example that you've set. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much indeed, Adam. That was Martin Griffiths in the Mediator Studio an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Some of you may have been listening to this podcast for a while, and for others, you might have discovered us more recently. Either way, if you've enjoyed the show, then please do tell your friends and colleagues. You can find other episodes at osloforum.org, where you can read more about the forum itself, and you can continue the conversation with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. That's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.